Welcome to the Gods of Tomorrow podcast, where we discuss religious deconstruction, secular humanism, political activism, and epistemology. Together, we explore how to solve human problems with human solutions. We deconstruct, we activate, and then most importantly, we live our fucking lives. I am your host, Josh Ra, and you are the gods of tomorrow. All right, all right, all right. Let's uh, let's do this shit. Holy balls, we are back. My name is Josh Ra. You can call me Josh, and this is episode four. We're going to be talking about the concept of hell and Satan and how these have evolved in the Christian mythology over the last several thousand years. It is a fascinating topic. I love talking about this. It is probably one of my favorite things to talk about, not only because it was probably the launch pad into my own deconstruction and beginning to research these, but also because I was told when I was pursuing ministry and I was preaching that I would be a preacher of hellfire and brimstone, uh, which I never actually preached about. Uh, But I was told that I would somehow encompass these ideas and threaten people uh, and tell them that they were going to have an eternal consequence and eternal damnation and all of these things. And again, like I said, that never occurred. And I just find it ironic that now here I am years later, a decade and a half later, and I am talking against these things. Uh, So the irony is not lost on me. I find it somewhat humorous. But yeah, let's, let's dive right into this, starting with the concept of hell. The earliest parts of the Hebrew Bible around the 8th century BCE describe the afterlife as Sheol a shadowy, silent pit where the souls of all the dead lingered in a minimal state of silent existence, forever outside of the presence of God. And by the 6th century BCE, Sheol was increasingly viewed as a temporary place where all the departed awaited a bodily resurrection. The Old Testament talked about Sheol, which was the state of the dead, And this is usually best translated as grave. Everyone went to the grave, whether they were good or bad, and they would stay there until the day of judgment. Now, if you were good, then you spent eternity with God. And if you were bad, then you were erased from existence, ceasing to exist. And again, this was a belief of a bodily resurrection, not a spiritual resurrection. That's probably a episode for another podcast, but it's important to know that early beliefs around the concept of hell had to do with a bodily resurrection out of Sheol and not a spiritual resurrection. Now, this idea of the afterlife continued into the New Testament where Jesus refers to the Jewish belief in the eternal fire of Gehana. Gehana had been rumored in modern times, as being a burning garbage dump. But it was actually a place where there were sacrifices of children and people by pagans. 
and it was considered to be a place separate from God. There was no idea in mainstream Judaism at the time that people would be tortured for eternity in the afterlife. In their culture, the most shameful thing that could happen was to be separated from God, and Gehenna was representative of that reality. That is what Jesus was referring to. Jesus would not have any understanding of the modern idea of a hell in the afterlife. Now, that lake of fire ideology, this is fascinating, that we see in Revelation is actually just a reflection of Jesus' teaching of the burning fig tree in the fire. It echoes that idea that we cease to exist when you're separated from God. And again, for Jesus, there was no concept of torture existing in the afterlife. There was no one in the afterlife that was going to be suffering for eternity. Jesus was a Jewish man that had been brought up on the Jewish teachings of the Old Testament, and he was reiterating the same ideas that were taught to him about Sheol, but using a modern reference of the time with Gehana in talking about this separation from God. And just to be really clear, too, and this is, again, something we'll have to talk about at another time, but there was no belief in anyone being resurrected. There was nobody that was experiencing an afterlife. Everyone was waiting until that judgment day. This is what the idea was at the time. So in looking at this concept of hell and how it evolved, it wasn't until the apocalypse of Peter in the second century that people started to popularize this idea of torment in the afterlife. And this was inspired by Hellenistic overtones from the Greek culture. This is mirrored in Dante's Inferno and Paradise Lost that come at a much later time period. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. But Jesus, again, would not recognize any ideas about fire and brimstone. This new ideology that's taught to us by Christians uh, didn't begin until sometime in the second century. And it was debated for a very long time until we saw it being included within the teachings of the church. Uh, in the late Middle Ages. But where did the apocalypse of Peter get these ideas about the afterlife? How did this story get to the place that it did in the second century? Our best resource is probably the book of Enoch, which started to be compiled in the third and fourth century BCE with more text that was added to it in the first and second century BCE. Chapter 21 is where we see the verse of the Lake of Fire. This verse was not in the Dead Sea Scroll fragments. Historians discovered the text on the Lake of Fire in the Ethiopian copy of Enoch, which had been translated from the Greek text. How did this reach the Ethiopian people? Well, our best link is Alexander the Great, who traveled to the Near East in 333 BCE and had a major influence on the Jewish mystics at the time, which impacted their concept about the soul and the afterlife. And this is mirrored, which is reflected in this text with the lake of fire in the first book of Enoch. See, many historians would say that the book of Enoch was written by the Jewish rabbi Ishmael, or was it at least the pseudepigraphic writing of Ishmael, who was a Merkabah 
Mystic. That's M-E-R-K-A-B-A-H. A Merkaba Mystic. His apocalyptic literature is what influenced the Gnostics in the 1st and 2nd century AD. Chances are he was introduced to the ideas that influenced this writing by Hellenistic views passed to him by the Greeks. So we have Alexander the Great, who is on his campaign across the East, entering the realm of the Jews, where he is influencing individuals like Ishmael with Greek ideas that lead to the writing of the Book of Enoch that capture these ideas like the Lake of Fire. But where did the Greeks get these ideas? Well, if we read Plato's eschatological myths and the Orphic doctrines that were introduced to Greek culture, which predate Alexander going to the Near East, we can see where this relationship is put together. Plato's Phaedo myth, which is included in the Orphic teachings, state that people lived in mansions in the afterlife, that there was a river of fire for the unworthy, and many other parallels that you're going to find repeated in the book of Enoch. We see that the writings of Plato and the ideas that he capture have been repeated in a text that was written thousands of miles away among the Jewish mystics. Now, we don't know how Orphism got its roots. We can't be for certain. But Herodotus said that the Greek culture was just an import from Egypt. And this makes sense, considering that the Book of the Dead mentions, you guessed it, the Lake of Fire, which was written around 1500 BC. The Lake of Fire, in this sense, was a purification of the dead and offered a second death. That's interesting language, considering that's how it's referred to in Revelations. But the Egyptians' belief system changed over several eras. Another fun fact is that the Dead Sea was once referred to as the Lake of Fire, and the Egyptians were aware of this because of the asphalt and the bitumen imports that they used in their mummification process and their embalming of the dead. So in summary, we see that the Lake of Fire concept and the tortured afterlife came out of Egypt, and this was introduced to the Greeks and captured in Plato's myths and the Orphic doctrines. That was then introduced to Jewish mystics through Alexander the Great's conquest. This was introduced to Gnostic literature through the Merkaba mystics, Orphism, and the Hellenistic influences, and that eventually influenced those of the Middle Ages to interpret biblical teachings, including revelations, which many didn't even want to have included in the New Testament. In a spectacular fashion, this has created a picture of a torturous afterlife of fire and brimstone. As you can probably imagine, the idea of Satan evolved along with these tales about hell. And I think we should all pay attention to the fact that Satan does not exist in the pre-exilic texts, and the portrayal of Satan in Job and Zechariah have a different presentation than Satan in other areas of scripture. There was a period where Satan was a prosecutor and was part of a divine council, which came out of myths out of the ancient Near East. Satan used to mean adversary or in opposition to, but it wasn't ever a popular noun or a unique being among the Hebrews or Israelites 
in the early stage of its development. Job is a popular allegorical tale and the oldest book that is actually written in the Bible. Many scholars, including folks like Rabbi Jonathan and Rabbi Eliezer, tell us that this was written after 538 BCE, and it was not written by Moses. I mean, I would argue that no books were written by Moses because he likely didn't exist. But we know that when Job was written, because it was written in Hebrew with some Aramaic underpinnings, that this combination of language means that it was put together somewhere around the early Second Temple period, or at least completed during that time period. Ezekiel, which is another great reference here, tells us that Job is a man of renown, along with Noah and Daniel, which are also tales of men, insert air quotes, influenced by the mythology of the Near East. One of my favorite speakers on Job is Christine Hayes, who talks about how Job included the article the before Satan for a long while before that article was removed so that Satan would be observed as a proper noun. But in the original Hebrew Bible, Satan was never the devil. Realizing that Satan was not the devil was one of my first hiccups in my faithful walk of Christianity. I've spoken about this before, but the verses in the Old Testament of 2 Samuel 24 and 1 Chronicles 21 that speak of David taking a census where one verse says God told him to do it and the other had Satan incite him to do it caused me to question the nature of Satan. And as I mentioned, I, I wasn't really indoctrinated hardcore into the idea of Satan being a fallen angel and a being that existed in hell. I mean, it was definitely part of the doctrine, but it was not the focus of my church. I didn't sit through sermons that, you know, talked about Satan leaving with a third of the angels and how he was influencing us to do evil in the world and similar concepts that come out of other Christian churches. It just wasn't a big piece of what was being taught within my church. But with that being said, I admit that one of the most confusing teachings in the Christian church was that Satan was an angel or a fallen angel. And these two verses, the discrepancy between them, caused me to take a really deep dive into studying the issue of Satan, which led me to studying the issue of hell. And I eventually discovered that there is nothing biblical that supports the claim of Satan being a fallen angel. In fact, while there were debates about fallen angels and the origin of evil, modern conceptualizations of Satan and hell weren't really taught in the Christian church until after the 17th century when John Milton's Paradise Lost became popularized. As far as I can tell, the concept of Satan being a fallen angel in the Christian mythos originated from the book of Enoch, the same place that we can point to for these ideas around hell. Enoch referred to the chief angel Shemahaza and 200 angels that fell away from heaven to earth, mated with human women and taught the human race magical arts and so forth. One of these days I'll have to create a podcast fully on the understanding of the sons of God and its evolution over the centuries. Uh, for instance, St. 
Augustine published City of Gods in the 5th century, where he tells us the sons of gods were the descendants of Seth. Um, sons of gods, as a side note, like now, are considered to mean second-tier deities, which include Yahweh, that were pushed aside in the pantheon as Yahweh rose to power and took the spot of El at the top of the pantheon. But the idea of fallen angels in Enoch is one of the first misinterpretations we have from Genesis 6-2 in regard to fallen angels. This language of sons of God in the book of Enoch was written at least a hundred years prior to Jesus and had embedded itself within Jewish mysticism. It was also later adopted by the Gnostics as an understanding of celestial bodies, but the core Jewish and Christian ontology found this to be blasphemous, and it was rejected. It was blasphemous to even consider that angels could sin, that they could rebel, or that God could cast them out of heaven. Two of the most popular verses we hear today in support of fallen angels are 2 Peter 2.4 and Jude 6.2. Peter 2.4 states, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, yada 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 and jude 6 states and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day these two letters were actually in response against babylonian and greek influences that were changing the course of their own doctrines in the beginnings of the christian church in fact if you read the book of enoch Next to 2 Peter and Jude, you're going to find that there are 30 reference points in 2 Peter and Jude to the book of Enoch as they try to argue against this literature to keep it out of the developing church. They were literally arguing that we should not be trying to decide what the nature is of celestial beings. Did I mention the idea of angels falling from heaven was also rejected in the 4th century by the church and from the Hebrew canon because it suggested that angels can sin? Evidence of Peter and Jude's rebuttal is actually found in the same books that people use to try to defend fallen angels. Peter tells us in verse 116 that these are cleverly invented stories, and he is referencing Enoch 10.4 when he says, if you believe God didn't spare the angels, then at least believe God knows how to rescue the godly from trials and keep the unrighteous under punishment. He and Jude are arguing against the book of Enoch. These two individuals are saying that false teachers slander celestial beings, and anyone who teaches that angels can fall from heaven are false teachers, which Peter makes clear in Second Peter Chapter 2, verse 10 through 12. And I feel like I'm almost giving a sermon here at this point, and I hope that it's not coming across that way, because it's not my intent to say that this is the truth of the Bible, and this is the real meaning behind, you know, Christianity, or behind the cosmos, or behind the one true God. It's more that this information, and in, in opening my eyes to this information, of how the church was taking scripture and twisting it and misrepresenting it to persuade people to come to their service and worship their God and pay their tithing was corrupt and it was broken and that it was not 
even following in suit with what the true doctrine was of the church at one time. And so this was just a major piece that led to my own personal deconstruction and recognizing how these concepts of Satan and hell had been fed to people to manipulate them into subservient behavior. And the issue that I had with this, of course, too, had to do with how angels were being represented or perceived. Um, I didn't spend as much time digging into this, but in the Bible, we have many verses that tell us that angels are physical, personal beings. Uh, they carry God's name. They channel God's spirit. They execute his will. They are in accordance of his character and purpose. And I was always taught that angels don't exercise free will. I was told that is what separated humans from angels. I was told that angels just carried out the commandments of God. Now it's been brought to my attention since then that other sects of Christianity and other Abrahamic religions teach that angels actually do have free will. And so this fits within the teachings of Satan being a fallen angel. But they say that angels cannot repent and that they are forever contracted into the decision they have made because they don't have divisive thinking. And I appreciate how that idea has continued to evolve into our modern era um, because I do not believe this is how angels have always been perceived, which is evident by what we see in the fourth century with these concepts being rejected by the church. And I should probably note that in Islam, Satan is not considered to be an angel, but another being altogether called a jinn. But for me, in my upbringing, it was troublesome to think that Satan could be an angel and had the ability to commit sin. Because this meant he would die. Considering that Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin equal death. But angels are not supposed to be able to die. Jesus tells us that angels cannot die in Luke 20, verses 35 and 36. And Jesus also tells us that when we die, we become like the angels. This conundrum was difficult to process because it meant that if I were to be resurrected with God and become like an angel, I could have the same nature as Satan and possibly fall away. And how could I possibly last an eternity without sin when I could not last a mortal life without sin. Furthermore, even Adam and Eve supposedly sinned, and they were in the presence of God. They walked with God in the garden and could not avoid sin. So Satan truly was an angel, and he truly had fallen, and I were to die and become like the angels. There was nothing saving me from eventually experiencing the eternal punishment that was interwoven within this belief system. Despite salvation, I knew that I could not last an eternity without having my own rebellion. So I want to mention a couple other verses before we wrap up. Many Christians believe that Satan, Lucifer, the devil, has always existed and is in opposition with God. A common verse used to support this is Isaiah 14, 12. 
Now, some texts have this verse with the word Lucifer in it because St. Jerome was commissioned by Pope Damascus to write the Latin Vulgate in the 4th century. Lucifer is a Latin word from a Roman language that did not exist at the time that the original text of the Old Testament was written. Jerome was translating from the Greek LXX version. And interestingly enough, the word that Jerome translated into Lucifer in Isaiah 14.12 exists several times in the Bible, and this was the only time he used the word Lucifer. With all of that being said, this chapter is about the king of Babylon. It has nothing to do with Satan. The original text could be translated to Daystar, son of dawn. But the whole chapter is, is about the king of Babylon. What many folks are not aware of is that St. Jerome had an adversarial bishop named Lucifer de Caligari that did not like Jerome's Arian teachings, and it is said that he included this within the verse as a slight against his rival, um, almost like he was saying that this epithet that was used for the king of Babylon he was also throwing towards his rival, Lucifer de Caligari. Now that error in the 4th century was not corrected for about a thousand years, and along with the Book of Enoch, which influenced Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy and John Milton's Paradise Lost, um, completely influenced and changed the course of the Christian mythos and how they perceived Satan and hell. The teachings of the church about Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, which speaks of the king of Tyre, not Satan, the serpent in the garden, and the foretelling of revelations was all linked to Satan through the story of Paradise Lost in the 17th century. Prior to its publication, this specific narrative was not taught in the church. So, bam, uh, I hope you guys have enjoyed this little crash course into the origins of Satan and hell and how it worked its way into the Christian mythos and how this has just shaped so much of our modern understanding, even into our popular culture, of ideas around hell, Satan, and Lucifer. Um, for me, it's mind-blowing. And after 15 years of reading through all of this information that has been uncovered and detailed by historians, it almost leaves a bad taste in my mouth now anytime that I see it misrepresented, I'm hoping that maybe someday we'll have a better narrative about the truth around these concepts and don't have it influence our lives so much and the decisions that we make. So without any further ado, I will let you guys go. Please go out into the world, live your best lives, go out and be the best versions of yourself, and I'll see you all next time. We'll